Is it possible that a man is serving a life sentence for a murder he did not commit? I think it's more than possible. I think uh, yeah, I think this is what what is happening, and uh, I think a lot of people had this feeling for a long time that there are serious doubts about his uh, guilt, and I think this new DNA evidence is. Uh, it's just the proof of this. Uh, so, so, so what, as far as you understand, there are several other suspects. What's the strongest alternative explanation for, for who murdered this girl? Uh, we presented a new theory. We revealed a new theory that, wasn't been, uh, that, that hasn't been revealed before. So we know this suspect had a few very violent incidents in the past. She suffers from a very rare mental uh, sickness that uh, can be described as a thirst for blood or a drive to, to murder people, basically. On December 6, 2006, 13-year-old Tahir Rada walked up the stairs to the girls' bathroom with no idea what was waiting for her beyond the stall door. Well, that's one story at least. Some believe she walked into the bathroom with an odd-looking man following close behind. Or maybe there was a, quote, group of friends that turned out to be more of an angry mob. None of us are sure, and for good reason. This week, I present to you the Israeli version of Making a Murderer, complete with all the corruption, false claims, manufacturing of evidence, and to be fair, pressure applied to the police, maybe even more. This case needs to be known all around the world. Cases of this manner need to be known all around the world, not where, just where they take place. Because cases like this expose flaws in the justice system, expose flaws in our society, and we can't let that stand as people. I'm your host, Michael. Welcome to Strange and Unexplained. In this week's case, I must admit, we are at a bit of a disadvantage because of a small language barrier. This case took place in Israel, so a lot of the names and locations that I'll be stating throughout the podcast um, are in Hebrew. So I will do my very best to pronounce them. I have looked up some of the more important uh, pronunciations throughout this case, and I will do my best. Uh, a lot of them are, are hard to even say without a Hebrew accent, so bear with me. But nonetheless... This case is very important. Uh, we start in the small town of Katsrin in Israel, meaning most of the information, like I said, will be in Hebrew. However, there's a very good documentary, which I used as a main study source for this case, uh, entitled Shadow of Truth. Now, this documentary is available on Netflix. Like I said before, it's very similar to uh, the American documentary of Making a Murderer. 
these documentaries both started around the same time uh, as far as being creation and actually got released around the same time. And I think it's because of the language barrier, Shadow of Truth obviously didn't have the success that Making a Murderer did in America. I know a lot of people don't like to read subtitles. Um, it's a lot of work. It, I know. It, I get it. But this case is worth it. This is a four-part series on Netflix. I highly suggest that you watch this um, because there's just no way I could do this entire story justice in the way that they did. But in the documentary, you can hear the voices of everyone involved in this twisted, manipulative, manipulative, uh, almost unbelievable story. So in this small Israeli town, Nofi Galan is the only high school consisting of around 600 students. Um, and I think their grades are 7 to 12, but I'm not positive. Uh, Tayer was an 8th grader at the time. She was 13 years old. And on that fateful day, Tayer was unfortunately the victim of a random act of brutality. Or at least I believe so. The exact details of that day have been a bit tangled from the original version. But as best I can understand... Tahir was supposed to be in theater class, but had decided to skip and was sitting in a courtyard with some friends. She told the other girls she was thirsty and that she was going to get a drink of water. Then Tahir walked down the hall and up the stairs to the 10th grade girls' bathroom. Because the 10th grade class was all out on a field trip, the halls and bathroom were completely empty and quiet. When she walked into the bathroom, she was attacked and brutally murdered. She was shoved into a stall and locked in. The killer slashed her throat twice, stabbed her in the abdomen several times, and caused seven impact wounds to her head. Then after all that, the killer took the knife and slit her wrist to ensure Tayer's death. Now when I first found out how this crime was committed and you see the crime scene photos you see the bathroom stall you see the blood it's it appears to be to me a crime of passion my first instinct was that okay i looked into the case before i saw the documentary a little bit right so i looked into the case so i knew that the original man convicted was not who i thought did the case right so just from seeing these photos though I thought, this has to be a crime of passion, right? Nobody goes to that extent, goes the extra step to slit the wrist. And I'll tell you how they knew that the wrist, uh, the slit wrist was post-mortem or, you know, after death because there was no bleeding below the wound of the wrist. The body was already so drained of blood that there was hardly any left to come out of the wrist arteries. All right, so, so moving on. So this is how the crime gets reported, right? When Tayer failed to return home that evening, her mother, Yana, immediately knew something was wrong. She started calling everyone she knew. And when no one knew where Tayer was, Yana called the police. A small search started with friends of the family um, other family members, extended family, to no success. 
And by this time, it was getting dark outside, and someone suggested maybe we should search the school. Room after room and hall after hall, there was no sign of Teir. Now, it's not clear to me how uh, these friends of the family got into the school. It seemed from the documentary that it was just two gentlemen that went in and searched the school. I don't know if they, how, how they gained entrance to the school. I don't know if the police let them in um, or whatever. But for whatever reason, I'm glad they did it. And eventually, their search led them to the 10th grade bathroom. The first stall was empty. The second and third stall were locked from the inside. And the man had to lift himself up to look into the stall. And unfortunately, there was Tayer. It took several police and friends to restrain Tayer's father and brothers when they heard the news. Tayer was the only girl in her family, and when she was born, her brothers were already years older than her. She was very loved and protected by everyone. Who would want to harm such a beautiful girl? And so brutally, what hatred did they hold against her? Now, I know I've seen mean girls, okay? And I have a daughter who's in middle school. And middle school kids can be some of the harshest and meanest kids around. And I don't, and I don't think it's necessarily uh, who they are. I, actually, I know it's not who they are because I too experienced middle school and going through it and realizing that people are trying to find out who they are, that people feel very insecure at that age. They, they're kind of just starting to establish who they are as individuals. Where do they fit into society? And everyone is very insecure. Everyone doesn't, they haven't found themselves. They haven't found that confidence. And I think that is a, a breeding ground for a hostile environment um, for kids, right? So I'm not, I still haven't ruled out at this point that it was a crime of passion. But to this extent, and this brutality, I just don't think this, this is definitely not the typical middle schooler, right? The events of that night, understandably, shook the whole community and put everyone on edge. There was a child killer loose, and inside the school, no less. The investigation started immediately, and very intensely. You can imagine the pressure that was on the cops to find out who did this, and fast. Parents were afraid to send their kids to school. At the first media, the media and police, they started questioning students and staff at the school. This only added to the tension. Kids, kids were suspecting each other, and parents were afraid of children. Um, there was even one interview with Tayer's mother where she mentioned another classmate by name and actually thought that she may have been responsible. She was a like a rival of Tayer's uh, growing up, just, you know, being in a small town and they they did a, had a lot of the same interest. Um, I think they danced together. They did different um, sports and things together. And they were they were both very good in school, very pretty girls. They were like rivals in a way. They, but to me, it almost looked like a healthy competition. Um, looking back now, it d didn't seem like this girl was capable of doing this type of murder. Um, but then a break came, finally. Three days later, a teacher told police 
she saw the school gardener acting odd in the teacher's lounge. Okay. The gardener was picked up and taken in for questioning. But it turned out that he was not even in town that night, and his alibi checked out, so he was released. Then when police started looking through everyone that was at the school that night, they noticed a man who looked a lot like the gardener. Just looked like him, right? And so Roman Zadorov enters our story. A Ukraini-Israeli immigrant who did not speak Hebrew well and was working installing tile in the school cellar on the day of the murder. It also turned out that Roman's work visa um, was not exactly legal. Roman was taken into custody and interrogated vigorously. He was eventually put into a cell with a paid informant to try and get a confession from him. And by this time, Roman had been kept for days with no outside contact. So you're an immigrant in a place where you barely speak the language. You're trying to work. You're trying to find work. You finally find some. Um, happens to be in a school and you happen to look like somebody who was suspected of being suspicious. And next thing you know, then you have a um, fraudulent-looking visa or um, what do they call it? The work work permit or whatever you want to call it. Um, almost like a temporary passport visa, but it was it was sketch. And then so this all adds up to this, right? And now he's kept in a cell with a paid informant. Now, this paid informant, um, it's definitely worth noting, was paid a salary by the police. He was an ex-criminal. He was paid a regular salary by police to do this type of thing, to be in, be in cells with people, with criminals, talk to them. And if this man happened to get a confession, of course, everything in the cell was taped, right? Recorded. If he happens to get a confession, his salary would be like tripled. Let me just put that in perspective for you. Um, a confession just was huge. That was his goal. Like if he got a confession, he could basically live months on the amount of money that was paid to him. So he's highly motivated to get whoever enters that cell to confess. The informant told Roman if he confessed that he killed Tyre in a fit of rage and did not remember doing it, he would only get convicted of manslaughter and may get an easier sentence. But with the evidence the police had brought against him, if he kept fighting it, they were definitely going to go after the life sentence. Okay, so you might be asking, what evidence do the police have against him? Well, that's a great question, because at this point, the police had none. Other than the fact that Roman worked at the school, they had none. They had nothing. They had nothing to place him at the crime scene. There was no blood on the clothes or the shoes that he was wearing that day. There was no hair on him that was, that was Tayer's. There was no blood. There was nothing that matched. Now you tell me, you kill someone in a bathroom stall. Now this is just a one-person stall. This is not an enlarged, handicap uh, stall. This is a very small stall, toilet, door, you know, maybe, what, three foot by four foot at the most? And you're telling me this man has no evidence of DNA, no blood, no hair, no nothing? It just doesn't add up. 
so Roman had trouble talking to the police since his Hebrew was not very good. He was also lied to and told that Teir's blood was found on his clothes. He was also told that hundreds of pictures of naked underage girls were found on his computer. But the truth was, none of them were underage. Roman was just looking at regular porn. All of this was a psychological game by the police to elicit a confession. And unfortunately for Roman, it worked. They made him think that he was now a pedophile who was working at the school and connected to the crime scene. Roman, after hearing that blood was found on his clothes and his DNA was found on the girl, began to doubt himself if he was innocent. And furthermore, began to doubt his own memory, his own recollection of what happened. He thought maybe he blacked out, couldn't remember killing her. He knew he did not kill her, but had no explanation for the evidence of him there. The fake evidence of him there. (laughs) So with the help of the informant, Roman began to piece together what might have happened. Now, when I say help, with the help of the informant, I mean this informant was literally feeding him excuses and things that happened and uh, details, all but putting words in his mouth. I mean, word for word, in the documentary, you see, you hear a tape of, the, of what this gentleman was saying to Roman in the cell. And then that next day, in a confession room with detectives, he is recounting almost word for word what this informant told him. All of a sudden, he has all these recollections of what happened. Because he's scared to death of getting life or getting the death penalty. Because he thinks there's already evidence. So, with the help of the informant, he began to piece together what might have happened, right? But he got all the details wrong. But was easily corrected or persuaded by his interrogators. When he got a detail wrong, they would just scream at him and tell him to quit lying. So therefore, that signified a trigger in his brain. He realized, okay, that must not be the right answer. I need to give them the right answer. Now, also, in these interrogations, like I said, he's not fluent in Hebrew, right? He is Ukrainian. He's not fluent in Hebrew, So there's already that. And then you're in a room with, as far as I can remember, no less than two other men who were interrogating him. Most of the time it was three. You had a man standing behind him. You had a man at the desk. And then you had a man in front of him screaming in his face. This is a lot of pressure for someone. And when you have all these people around you, you're you're cut off from the outside world. He's cut off from his wife and his family. Um... Speaking of his family, his newborn son was born that week. That week. Okay? Does that sound like a man who would, who would want to throw all this away? But let's, let's move on. Here's an example of, um, of like a part of a script of how the interrogator, how the detective um, manipulated his, his uh, confession, right? So the detective... Where else did you cut her? Roman. In the appendix area, I think. Detective. Tell the truth, Roman. Where did you cut her? Roman continued guessing in this way until he got it right. The detectives made a mistake all week, 
telling Roman that Teyer was found on the second floor. But where she was killed was an area between the first and second floor, a mezzanine. So when they took Roman to the school and asked him to reenact the events of that day, Roman headed to the second floor because that's what was told to him over and over again in these interviews. The, the interrogator would almost lead into the story. Okay, so you saw her going up the second floor. Then what happened? Or when you entered the bathroom on the second floor, what happened? He, he, they just kept putting these things in his mind. So when they took Roman to the school and asked him to reenact the events, Roman headed to the second floor. But the police made a huge mistake here. Like I said, now Roman headed to the second floor going right past the bathroom in which he allegedly slaughtered a 13-year-old girl. You don't think he would remember where he slaughtered a 13-year-old girl? Also, how did the police not know which bathroom it took place in? So they get to the school. Roman is walking them through uh, the reenactment, right? And as they're going up the stairs and they're about to approach the second floor, the police officers, that now they're on the mezzanine where the murder actually took place, right? They're getting ready to go up to the next level bathroom and they see the police tape from where it was, from the actual bathroom was taped off and they stop Roman there. Even though Roman was going to walk right past it to the second floor like he'd been told over and over again, they stopped him and pretended to mess with his handcuffs and as they did that, it gave Roman time to stand there and look around. And then he saw the bathroom with all the tape. So obviously, anybody with any common sense would be like, okay, well, that's where it happened. So after this quote-unquote handcuff adjustment, he walks right into the bathroom where the murder actually happened, right? They guided him to where he needed to be. Then inside the bathroom stall, they asked him to reenact how he got out with the door still locked. So Roman grabbed each side of the stall, right, threw his legs up and over the door and into the bathroom, and then hopped out. However, evidence showed, very, very clear evidence, mind you, showed that the murder actually exited by jumping from stall two into stall three. The first footstep was made on the toilet, on the seat, and then the second step was made on the back of the toilet. And then the third step, shoe print, was actually found on top of the stall wall. It was obvious that someone hopped the stall wall, not the door. Nothing Roman said was lining up. He knew no, no details of the crime, and there was no evidence of him even being there. His belongings were examined and nothing was connected. Nothing connected him to Tayer. Within 24 hours of his confession, Roman recanted. He was finally able to speak to his lawyer. But unfortunately for Roman, his fate was sealed. The police honed in on him and made the evidence that they needed. No physical evidence tied Roman at this time until it was brought before the prosecution that there was a shoe print on Tayer's pant leg. 
the uh, quote-unquote print matched the size and shape of Roman's work shoes that he was wearing the day of the murder. However, as you might suspect, the so-called shoe print was sent to many experts worldwide, and all of them claimed the print was inconclusive, including the top, um, I don't know what you would call them, uh, shoe print analyst, analysis expert um, of the U.S. He even said himself that this was not even a shoe print. Like if you if you Google shoe print analysis expert, like this guy's like the first guy that comes up. Okay, even he said that this was not even a shoe print, and he signed it. He signed off on it, hundred percent, not a shoe print, and. If you watch the documentary, I I think you would 100% agree. There's nothing but blood, random blood splatters that, um, yeah, I guess in the right light or, you know, with the right lens, I guess you could say that some of them resemble a shoe pattern. But even if so, why was there no blood traces on Roman's shoes? Right? It just didn't, it just... It was a stretch, at best, a huge stretch. Some even said you could not positively identify it as a shoe print at all. However, the judge residing over the case decided not to accept the expert testimonies. Shocker, right? The multiple expert testimonies. Stating that he could see that it was a footprint and that they were merely amateurs. What the court and prosecution did not disclose was all the other evidence that was at the scene, but did not belong to Roman, including hair and DNA. So it was accepted that there was other hair and other DNA in the scene, but it was never tested, and none of it was Roman's. Roman Zadorov was convicted and sentenced to life in prison for the murder of Tyre Rada. Yana, Tahir's mother, believed that the courts did not do their job in proving Roman's guilt and believes Tahir's killer is still out there. Now, her father, on the other hand, died believing that Roman did this murder. Now, I don't, I, I don't think that the father really looked into the evidence. I think the father was just so angry um, it's also important to note that her father was dying of cancer at the time and actually died um, in 2016 of cancer. So he died believing that Roman was the murderer of his daughter. And I think he was just so angry and so out for justice and vengeance. And also, you don't want to think that another child killed your daughter. You don't want to think, because at this time, the only other suggestion was that maybe Tyre had angered someone. Maybe, maybe Tyre's friends were trying to teach her a lesson, right? And that's just not something parents want to accept. Parents don't want to accept that their child did something to deserve some type of retaliation. Does that make sense? They, they would rather it be that just some... some perverted, sadistic, grown man made her a target and now he's behind bars and the world is safe again, right? 
So, like I said, Tyre's mother, though, never believed it was Roman. Then a break came six years later when a man known as A.H. His real identity is sealed through the courts, which I believe is, is smart on his part. He claimed he knew who really killed Tyre. Here's a news interview done by I-24 News with Ari Pines. He was the director of Shadow of Truth, and he talks about this new evidence. Revealed a new theory that, wasn't been, uh, that, that hasn't been revealed before, uh, and it was about um, a guy named, his initials are A.H. He went to the police in 2012, and uh, six years after the murder, and told them that his ex-girlfriend, whose initials are A.K., uh, confessed to him that she, in fact, uh, murdered Tahir. Confessed to him on the, on the very day of the murder. Um, Why would she, she confess this to him? And, and that she even showed him a bag with clothes and knife full, full, full of blood. And the police didn't really take him seriously because they already have a man who was convicted, so they don't want to start uh, to, to open this case uh, from the beginning. Uh, but the evidence that was found now, interestingly, is his hair. His hair was found on the body of Tahir. Now, in the his, boyfriend of the, the boyfriend. woman who, who apparently allegedly confessed to killing yeah. her. Now, in his testimony, he said that she took his clothes when she went to school that day to, to kill a girl. She didn't mind which girl. It was like a random murder. So, in fact, this new, this new evidence corroborates his testimony. So, when you say this was a random murder, what do we, what do we know about the suspect? What, what could have been her motive? So we know the suspect had a few very violent incidents in the past. She suffers from a very rare mental uh, sickness that uh, can be described as a thirst for blood or a drive to, to murder people, basically. She, she thinks there is like this she-wolf who lives inside her and tells her to, to cut people up, to, to enter their bodies. So I guess this is She's the murder. She's di diagnosed. Diagnosed. She was in a mental institution. She talked about. What do you mean this. was? Where is she now? Well, uh, just uh, it happens to be that just now when they found this new evidence, she is out of the country. She's not in Israel. Um, she's abroad and. My guess is she will, she's never coming back. And I think the Israeli prosecution, which still doesn't admit that she is the, the murderer, she, they still say uh, Zadorov, this janitor, is in fact the, the murderer. So let's have a look at that. What, what evidence is there that, that Zadorov did it? Why would the prosecution be so insistent that this man did it? Well, he confessed. And in Israel, this is enough to put you in jail for the rest of your life. Even though, as you said, the evidence points towards this woman. And even though in the Supreme Court... Uh, two, judge, two judges in the Supreme Court said he was guilty. One judge wanted to vindicate him. So briefly, what happens now that they presented this evidence? Could they indeed do a retrial as the, the defend, uh, defense attorneys are demanding? I think we're headed towards a retrial, definitely. It maybe might take a few months, but I think it's only a matter of time. A shocking we... story and one horrific injustice will have been compounded by another injustice if it turns out that an innocent man has been in jail all this time. Ari Pines, director of uh, Shadow of Truth, thank you very much thank for you. joining us. Okay, so now we have a very interesting, uh, seemingly far-fetched theory, right? That this girl named A.H. Um, randomly committed this murder because she just wanted to kill anyone. And she attended this high school and knew how to get in, knew where the bathrooms were, um, wore her boyfriend's clothes, and, 
Um, also, something that um, Ari did not mention was the fact that she took like an ace bandage and actually wrapped her chest. She wrapped her breasts to flatten them. When she wore her boyfriend's clothes, she wore a wig, a hat, um, and like I said, his pants and shirt. Now, AK told AH, her boyfriend at the time, that her happy place was inside of someone, surrounded by blood, and that she was hungry all the time and saw people as sandwiches walking around, for lack of a better term. Um, and the day after the murder, she called A.H. around 2 p.m., just after Tayer was killed, and told him something had happened, but did not tell him what. And it was not until around 1 a.m. that she finally confessed to A.H. A.K. said that she took some of his clothes, like I said, the wig, and also a hunting knife, which she had been arrested for possession of this hunting knife before. She loaded them into a backpack and headed to the high school. She was dressed and acted as if she was a student. She slipped inside without anyone noticing. She went into the bathroom and hid in a locked stall, waiting for just the right moment. She waited for about two hours, hearing girls come in and out. Then she heard an opportunity. A girl entered the bathroom alone during class. AK emerged from her hiding place with her knife in hand. She grabbed Tayer by the back of the head and shoved her into the stall. She used her hand to cover Tayer's mouth and then slit her throat and brutally killed her. Once she was sure Tayer was dead, she jumped over the wall into stall three and changed clothes, shoving all the bloody evidence into her book bag. And just as she had unsuspectingly slipped in to the high school, she slipped out and disappeared. With such a confession, and even details matching that of other witnesses, you would think this was an avenue to explore immediately and in great detail. However, the opposite was done. A.H. claims police picked him up and took him to a prison where he was tortured and told to recant his testimony. But he never did, and eventually was turned loose. However, when presented in court, the prosecution stated that A.H., was a, quote, unreliable witness. He was an angry lover who made up a story when his girlfriend said she was leaving him. A.H. and A.K. were both brought in and questioned. Their DNA was compared to that of the DNA under Tyre's fingernails, which it was already confirmed that there was no foreign DNA under Tyre's fingernails. None of their DNA was compared with the 100-plus other samples collected at the scene. However, one of the hairs collected was a match to A.H., the boyfriend, and a synthetic hair was also recovered, which obviously was from a wig, <laughs> which all lined up with the A.H. story. His hair would have been on the hoodie. It was his hoodie. And the synthetic hair obviously came from the wig. It's also interesting to note that one of the girls questioned said she saw an odd-looking, curly-haired girl the day of the murder, but no one ever came to question her about it. 
Now, in case you haven't guessed, yes, this wig, which they show a picture of in the documentary, was a short, curly-haired wig. Now, while A.H. and A.K. were under investigation, A.K. tried to kill her new boyfriend, who was staying in nearby dorms. A.K. was taken into custody and admitted to a psychiatric hospital, where she stayed until her release in 2015. So apparently she goes to her new boyfriend's dorm and asks, I guess very bluntly, to come inside to have sex, right? So he invites her in. He, as he's walking in, he turns around and she immediately takes like a shard of glass from a broken bottle or something of the sort and holds it up to his neck. And actually he said that she was, was, uh, providing a lot of pressure. Like she was actually trying to kill him. Um, he's lucky to be alive, honestly, but she, uh, she failed in taking his life. He was able to fight back and she was taken into custody and admitted to a psychiatric hospital where she stayed until her release in 2015. Now, as of April, 2020, the state has opposed a retrial for Roman Zadarov and he is still serving this life sentence for Tyre's murder, while the, in my opinion, the real killer is still out there somewhere. She's not in Israel anymore. She has left Israel, but she's still out there, as you heard, you know, from Ari Pine's uh, interview um, with the news channel, but she's still out there. And to this day, Yana Rada, Tyre's mother, and many members of the public believe Mr. Roman Zadorov is innocent. And I don't understand how you can look into this case and not believe he's innocent. And But even more frustrating than that, even more frustrating than a man serving 10 plus years already in prison for something he didn't do, is that Tyre's killer is still on the loose. Someone who has expressed a, a unhealthy obsession with blood, someone who wants to kill, someone who has who has said that they are unable to control, and obviously they're unable to control this um, this urge. You know what's very interesting about this case to me is that if this girl continues to go on, if AK continues to live on and do this, which um, in my opinion she will. I think she will hurt someone again. She will kill again. The urge is going to be too strong. We may be looking, at least in, in my, to my knowledge, one of the first sexually motivated female serial killers. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't, I don't know of another woman who killed for, and I'm not saying that she is molesting, but it gives her pleasure. It gives her pleasure to have the blood on her. It gives her pleasure to cut someone open, to see what's on the inside. And she blames this on being a child and um, being around her great-grandfather, who was apparently a, a warmonger, a very violent man, a very sadistic man, but he cared for her greatly. And... She remembers one time being out, I don't know if they were camping or, or what, for, for, for whatever reason, she was very young and they were out in the elements and she remembers him 
killing something, um, whether it be a wolf, um, a deer, uh, God forbid, a person, I don't know. Um, and it, even in the documentary, it, it's kind of unclear. It kind of leaves this open-ended. I'm not sure anyone knows. But he placed her in this carcass to stay warm. And she was in this in this dead, freshly dead carcass for some amount of time, and she believes that it saved her life, and she felt warm. She felt safe, uh, covered in, in this blood, and sh- she blames that with her now obsession with this. She feels that, I guess it taught her at a young age uh, to, to not value human life as much. I, I don't know. But that's just a little, um, a little insight into how she thinks. It's it's very twisted. It's it's very disturbing. Um, but nonetheless, that's that's where we're at. That's the type of person that we're dealing with here. Um, with AK, she is still she is still on the loose somewhere. Um, but again, guys, I highly recommend you watch this documentary, Shadow of Truth. Um, it's, it's quite hard to find on Netflix. You pretty much have to type in the whole thing. And like I said, it's subtitled. The entire thing is in Hebrew, but if you, if you have to slow it down, if you have to pause to read or whatever, it's, it's so worth it. It's so worth it. It is one of the, one of the best crime documentaries that I've watched in a long time. And this case needs to be more publicized it needs to be out there because an innocent man is in prison right now for something that he did not do, like many men. Um, but I think, you know, it's our responsibility, especially in America, um, where, you know, we have our own issues, but we also have the broadest reach when it comes to media, when it comes um, to newscast, when it comes to um, just publicizing anything or publishing anything. America is the hub and we can, we can help. I really do. I think more, more awareness needs to come about this case in cases like it. All right, guys. So that's, those are my thoughts on the case. Those are the facts. Um, I'm sorry I didn't have more clips and more audio, but as you may have guessed, most of them are in Hebrew anyways. Um, so you guys would, most of my listeners, I think would be unable to, to, uh, understand and comprehend that. And I would just be reading the subtitles to you. So I figured I would just talk. (laughs) So you may be tired of hearing my voice in this episode. So, uh, let's bring in another voice. Let's bring in my good friend, Lauren, for this week's Lauren's synopsis. I'm pretty sure I know what side of the fence he's going to be on. (laughs) Let's kick it, Lauren. It's time for Lauren. It's time for Lauren's synopsis. Breaking down the case like. Breaking down the case like cardboard boxes. It's time for Lauren. It's time for Lauren's synopsis. Breaking down the case like. Breaking down the case like cardboard boxes. It's time for Lauren. It's time for Lauren's synopsis. Breaking down the case like. Breaking down the case like cardboard boxes. What's up, people? Lauren here, here to get my thoughts on this week's strange and unexplained, the very brutal murder of Terry Rada, 
a 13-year-old schoolgirl in Katherine, Israel back in 2006. She was brutally murdered in, a, in the bathroom stall of her own school, um, slashed many times with a knife, the killer leaving the door to the stall broken and locked, uh, and then climbing out of the stall, leaving bloody footprints behind. I did watch the four-part docuseries on, that's on Netflix currently called Shadow of Truth, very good docu-series. Um, it is, however, all in Hebrew, so you have to read subtitles the entire time. Kind of, kind of uh, gets tiring after a while. You, have to, you can't look away for a second um, and just listen. You have to read the whole time. But it is a very good docu-series and um, proves, in my opinion, that even over in Israel and other countries, you can have forced confessions from the police because I, I felt this was very similar to West Memphis Three, to making a murderer with Brendan Desi and Jesse Miss Kelly over in uh, West Memphis Three, where they zoned in on this guy who was working as a tiler for the school, Roman Zadorov, who was a Ukrainian immigrant. Um, they assumed it was him that had committed this act. He was kind of a wild card, a guy working on site who didn't really fit in. Um, and they just pressured him, and they used all kinds of sneaky tactics, saying that they had found blood on his tools and whatnot, even though they, they hadn't. They were just lying to see how he would react. And they just didn't lay off. They just kept pressuring and pressuring and pressuring and leading him in a direction for a confession. You know, like he would, he finally got to the point where, and they even, they even used another tactic where they put a cellmate in with him who was a, was a, a he, he was a, had, was working for the police. He was a former criminal who was now working and being paid by the police, not only uh, like with $30 an hour or something he was making, but also he was getting an extra like $12,000 if he got a confession from the guy. So the guy was willing to do anything. And he basically what he convinced Roman of was that they had enough evidence to get him convicted and that if he just came clean and admitted that he had done it, that he would get a much lighter sentence, he might get manslaughter. And so Roman, believing this guy and also questioning his own, um, his own memory, he was really questioning because he was starting to think like, if they have this evidence, maybe I really did do this and I just don't remember it. Um, and eventually he decides, okay, I'm just going to confess to doing this even though I don't remember doing it and maybe I'll get a lighter sentence. They then lead him on. Once he decides he's going to confess, he, he, he says he did it. Then they then lead him in the direction of how he did it based on the evidence. So he starts saying, well, I did it this way. Just like in the West Memphis Three, Jesse and Miss Kelly had so many details wrong initially until they steered him in the correct direction of what to say to make to match the evidence at the scene. He didn't even know where the bathroom was when they took him to the school. He thought it was on an upper floor when really it was on the mezzanine. Um, speaking about Roman, um, so like they they basically had to like stop and act like something was wrong with his handcuffs to lead him to, in the right direction of where the actual murder occurred because the guy didn't freaking know. You know, and nonetheless, they got him convicted and he is serving a life sentence right now. But um, in part four, there's some shocking revelations. They go through, I think it's part of uh, the third episode. They talk a lot about the classmates and they, they throw some suspicion their way. Um, but then really it comes down to a guy that goes by the initials A.H. that comes to police and says that he ha he knows who killed uh, Tahir. Um, and it was his ex-girlfriend who had recently broken up with him, which seems a little fishy. You know, your girlfriend, is. you've been dating her for six years after this crime occurred. The guy, the perpetrator, allegedly, is already locked up, and now you come and say that your, your ex-girlfriend who just broke up with you and broke your heart killed this young girl. Um, however, so much stuff is believable, uh, believable about his story. Um, he says that she comes to him one night and shows him this, this backpack filled with uh, a, a bloody knife, bloody clothes, and his girlfriend um, has some serious mental issues. 
Um, she loves the sight of blood. Um, she feels comforted by it. She wants to pull the innards out of people when she sees people walking around, supposedly. Um, she just sees them as food or um, as like a carcass that she wants to crawl up inside the warm body of. It's very disturbing, her what's going on in this in this woman's head. And she goes by uh, the initials AK. And the documentary never gave their names. Um, they, the documentary must have been concerned about a potential lawsuit or something along those lines. But um, very disturbing. And by the, by the end of the fourth episode and the end of this series, I was com- fully convinced that this AK character who then went on to get put in a psych ward for attempting to murder someone else and then coming clean about all the thoughts that were going on in her head about wanting to crawl inside of a um, inside of a person's body. Um, and that's the only place that she felt comfortable. And it stemmed from a lot of stuff in her past with her grandfather, who was a brutal man, apparently. Um, but yeah, I, I do believe, unfortunately, that Roman Zdorov is another victim of, of a forced confession by police who were, I think they, they saw an opportunity in a guy who, you know, the, the population in Israel may, may not care about um, a Ukrainian immigrant, and they, they saw this guy's an easy person to pin it on and get this case closed, you know, and, and get the public settled down because the public was outraged by a young girl being murdered in the bathroom of her own school. They were very scared of who this could be. So if they get this person locked up, they get a confession, boom, their job's well done, and, uh, and I just think they railroaded this poor guy, and I hope uh, justice is served at some point. Um, but yeah, and, and the ir- irony of it is that this AK character, I think, I don't know how the justice system works over in Israel too much. I don't know, but I think she had a good chance of actually getting off on insanity and ending up right where she is now anyway. She's in a psych ward for her behavior. So, you know, that, that she, she may have been convicted. They would have had closure. The family would have known for sure who did it. And also she may not have even ended up in prison anyway because she's truly disturbed for sure. Um, so yeah, that's my thoughts on this week's Strange and Unexplained. Hope you guys enjoyed it. See y'all next week. Once again, another excellent synopsis by Lorne. Um, always appreciate his point of view. Always appreciate uh, his insight. Uh, one thing he did get wrong, no no problem, Lorne, no big deal, uh, is the fact that AK is not in a psych ward anymore. She is been released as of uh, 2015. So we don't. nobody knows where she is. She's not in Israel anymore, but she is out there. But I do believe that if she would have confessed there was a good chance of getting off on insanity um i do believe there was enough of that there but that is just um as we've seen in this case i just don't think that is as satisfactory to the police even though it seems all of israel at this point and most people in the world that have seen this documentary would rather the truth come out and would rather this person that potentially uh committed this crime to actually be off the streets but that's the story guys that's uh shadows of truth and i think that is a great name because that's exactly what it feels like it's just um a man who was framed and there are shadows of truth all around him but no one at least in the justice system it seems um or two out of three judges um, as you've heard in, in the interview, he said that one judge did want to vindicate him, um, but two two did not. So two out of three. But it is important to note that one of those uh, two judges that were against him was the judge that passed down the sentence in the first place. So in order for someone to go back on it now, he would have to admit his wrongdoing. As we know, many people in the justice system 
do not care to do that. Because why? Because people will lose faith in the justice system, as if people could lose any more faith in the justice system. Uh, but that's neither here nor there. Um, but guys, I want to get to some more positive things. I want to thank the listeners of the show. I want to thank um, my, my new Patreon supporters. Um, and if you don't know what that is, it's patreon.com slash sandu podcast, uh, S and U podcast. Um, or if you already have Patreon, you can Patreon and then search strange and unexplained. And guys, for, for $3 a month, you get access to all of these episodes early. Uh, they're released on Thursdays instead of Monday. So the Thursday before, um, you'll have access to these, these full episodes. And also I have a couple smaller shows on there. I have one called strange shorts, um, and they are more informal. Uh, yes, if you can believe it, uh, any, even more informal than, than the regular episodes. Um, but that's part of how I wanted to do this podcast. I'm trying to be down to earth. I'm trying to be like a friend bringing you cases. And this is how I enjoy podcasting. This is how I enjoy talking about these cases. So hopefully you guys enjoy this approach as well. I mean, obviously you're still listening, so you must like something about it. But I have a show called Strange Shorts, which is uh, usually lighter crimes, but they're also strange. Um, and a lot of times those episodes still end up being 20, 30 minutes. So it's like a whole nother episode. And then I also have another podcast called the Palette Cleanser Podcast. And that is just almost um, an atmospheric type podcast I try to create something that will distract you from true crime, something that will distract you from the horrible things that you love to digest on a daily uh, on a daily basis, like myself. Sometimes I need my own palate cleanser, and um, I enjoy doing those. It's fun. Uh, I get to be musically creative. Um, I get to be, um, you know, just creative with sound in general. That's one reason I love podcasting, because it's such an open and free expression of media. Anything that can be a sound can be put into a podcast, and I love that freedom. I love that expression. And um, like I said before, in the very first, in the Welcome to Strange and Unexplained, and in the first episode, I talked about how this podcast will be changing. It will be evolving. There'll be new elements um, brought in. There's no way that I'll stick to the same format for the entire life of this podcast, but I will continue to do it. And... um, yeah, so expect that. Expect uh, to be uh, kept on your toes, and especially in the Patreon experience. Um, I put forth a lot of a lot of creative energy into that um, because those people, you know, directly help fund this podcast and help keep it on the rails. <laughs> if that uh, if that makes any sense. But I want to thank one of my new supporters, uh, Esther Ludlow from Once Upon a Crime. Esther has been a huge. A supporter and a huge advocate of not only Strange and Unexplained, but also True Crime Guys, which if you don't know, uh, Strange and Unexplained is a True Crime Guys production. True Crime Guys is a podcast that me and my friend Lauren, who you heard in the synopsis, started four years ago. And uh, we're still going strong with that show as well. So if you haven't checked out True Crime Guys, definitely check that out. But thank you, Esther, as, as well as all my other patrons. Um, that are still donating on a monthly basis. Like I said, I have a $3 tier where it'll get you access to all of the audio posts on the Patreon. And as, um, yeah, so pretty much everything audio. And then I have a $5 tier where you will receive an exclusive uh, Strange and Unexplained Patreon sticker in the mail, uh, which there's pictures of on the Patreon and also on social media at Sandu Podcast. Um, and then the and you will also get access to the video 
on the $5 tier. I call it strange visuals because you have a visual sticker and uh, obviously there's video of me talking and things like that. So I also plan to maybe put up some more, put up some artwork, maybe paintings that I've done, things like that. I don't know. Um, I'm still, I'm still learning with this podcast. I'm still finding new avenues for expression and for entertainment. And like I said, this podcast will always be changing. But if you can't afford the monthly donation, no big deal. Um, another good way to help this podcast is obviously tell your friends, uh, share on social media, um, tag at Sandu Podcast on Instagram, on Twitter, whatever. Hit me up if you have a suggestion. Um, or you could leave a review. Like many people have done, we're up over 40 reviews, which is pretty freaking awesome. Um, now, not all of those people actually typed anything in the review. Some people just clicked five stars. That's a great way to help the show. Um, but I have, a, I have a new review this week by, from Shivy. She says, appreciate the calm live out, uh, layout. Appreciate the calm layout and down-to-earth approach. Uh, five stars. Thank you very much, uh, Shivy. That's in the U.S. So uh, I appreciate that very much. Like I said, there's been others that were reviewed, but if you don't type anything, it doesn't show me your name, so I can't give you a shout-out. But if you'd like a shout-out, that's the best way to do it. Guaranteed, I'll give you one. <laughs> But guys, thanks for listening. Um, like I said, if you have a case suggestion or any type of suggestion for the show, hit me up at Sandu Podcast on Instagram, um, on Twitter. That's S and U, the word and spelt out, at S and U Podcast or Sandu Podcast, as I like to call it. That's on Twitter, Instagram, and then at Strange and Unexplained on Facebook. Uh, you guys go give us a follow, uh, give us a like share we really appreciate that very much in these early stages of the show all right guys so that's i think that's enough rambling i'll see y'all next week remember be strange just don't be a stranger <laughs>